What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Well, howdy, everybody. Welcome. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the middle of July. <laughs> we uh, yes. we were originally supposed to have an interview this week, and it got postponed. And I'm not going to say with who. It's a surprise. I've got a couple of uh, pretty pretty decent interviews lined up, but we're just trying to work out the, the scheduling on... Um, Ken and I have a very small window where we're both available on a couple of days during the week and on the weekends and stuff. And so we're trying to coordinate that with our special guests so that we can get those in. But since how that, uh, that did not come to fruition in the time frame that everybody was hoping we are going to do a listener question episode this morning. We haven't done one of those for a little while. And in addition to that, um, this is also something that I, I'm going to tease at a high level because I I'm, I don't want to say the date yet because I don't know for a fact. I've got to talk to Natalie. But we're going to be doing a live natural beekeeping-related Q&A with our guests. Um, we'll be using the Podbean Live system so that you can tune in and listen to it live while we're recording, or you can actually call in and be a part of the show and ask questions and all that fun stuff. And we're looking at doing that one Fingers crossed. The hope is maybe air date wise would be that when we would do the regular natural beekeeping segment for the first part of August, but the live recording will actually happen before that. But I don't know the date and time yet. So stay tuned for that. Watch our social media and uh, hopefully by next Monday's episode, which will be that last Monday of July, we'll go through and we'll have uh, an exact date for everybody on that one. So, but again, stay tuned. Watch social media. We'll we'll post it out there for everybody with the information on when to tune in and how to join. And uh, that'll I think that'll be fun. That'll give everybody an opportunity to actually get to talk to Ken and I and Natalie, all three, um, quote unquote, in person, live, I guess I should say, not in person, but and uh, and go through and ask any questions that you may have about natural beekeeping and those segments and stuff so far. And uh, that'll that'll be kind of a fun experience for everybody. So stay tuned for that. I got to get some, uh, or some eggs. I got to get some frames off Natalie. That's all. We already talked about it earlier in another, another one of the thing, uh, shows, but, uh, <laughs> we talked uh, about it. Tease. That's we talked tease. about it in the, in the bonus. No, more. no, I was just gonna say, we talked about it in the bonus episode, which today, um, we actually recorded this week, the bonus episode and the main segment episode, at the same, well, at the, uh, in the same day, but the bonus episode mm -hmm. came first instead of last, because um, mm -hmm. Ken had a lot of swarm talk. He needed to get out of his system. Oh yeah, I had to get out of it. <laughs> so, yeah. so we got we let him bees up here. We let him do that one first. So for all of our Patreon members, you'll you'll get to hear all those stories coming up this Thursday. So uh, for everybody else out there, though, this one is a listener question episode. We're going to go back a little ways here and kind of see if we can get a couple of different things put in there. Some of these topics are things that we have covered on the show in the past couple of seasons. Um, some of them are actually 
possibly subjects that have been broached on previous listener question episodes. But uh, we've, you know, we've got some new listeners that are coming through and they've sent questions in and it sometimes doesn't hurt to do just a little refresher here and there. So we're going to go back through. But this first one is actually from Mike and uh, Mike has, has asked questions and stuff before Mike has been a long time listener and, and fan of the show. And this one is a question that I know we haven't tackled in this regard before. And I thought it was actually pretty, pretty decent. So this is, it revolves, er, it involves B removals. And he says, this is my first year doing cutouts and I've studied a lot of books and I've watched a lot of videos on YouTube and I pretty much have a good system down at least for the simplest of jobs. However, there is one problem. I'm going broke doing cutouts. How in the world do you make money doing this? So <laughs> I liked the, the vein that that kind of took there, you know, because it wasn't just how do you do one? It was how are you doing this as a business and actually making any money off of it? And I, you know, I responded back to Mike. This email actually came in last month. Um, so I'm kind of going backwards and working forward here to some of the newer questions. But the first and foremost part of that is Number one, what would you say, Ken? The first thing, if you don't want to go broke doing cutouts, what would be your very first thing? Don't count the bees as money. You, 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 you're taking the bees. Yes, you get the bees, but you can't count that as part of your payment. That's right. The bees actually cost you money. <laughs> so first and foremost, you have to charge for your services. You, it doesn't <laughs> matter if you're doing a, a little meter box in the ground or if you're doing, you know, a, a swarm, not a swarm, you're doing a colony that's living in a tree, you're doing like a forced abscond or a trap out from a tree, or you're physically opening up structures and going through and taking stuff out of the structure. So you have to start off on, even if you go through and you're doing like the, the smallest thing, you've got time involved in that. You have taken your time to drive out there. Driving out there puts mileage on your vehicle and also uses fuel. So at the very least, there should be some sort of trip surcharge or fuel surcharge on there. And if you want to put it at like national standards, you can. They're actually a little bit higher right now. I set mine back at what the standards used to be, which were 55 cents a mile. And that's to and from the location. So not just 55 cents a mile to get out there, but then you've still got to drive back from somewhere you would not have gone otherwise had you not had to go out and do this removal. So that's number one, charge for the driving out there. Number two, you need some sort of hourly rate if you're doing the smaller type jobs. And that would insinuate going through and actually doing where you can base it literally on whatever you want to. But when you're first starting off, the simplest thing to do is $60 an hour. And that's because it's a dollar a minute. It's the easiest thing for you to calculate. If you go out there and they're in a small container and you're picking it up off the property and it takes you 15 minutes, it's $15 plus your mileage, right? Now, granted, say that mileage was only $5 worth of gas and mileage at the most. It probably wasn't even that. So you're only charging them $20 to come pick this small container up off their property and leave. Now you take that container back to your place, you take it out of there, you extract it, you got to put it into something. $20 is not going to afford you anything when it comes to a full-sized Langstroth style hive. 
So one of the ways that you can go through and, and kind of help mitigate that is you've got to cut the cost of what you're putting the bees into. Because just like Ken said, don't count the cost of the bees as part of your profit because the bees actually cost you money. They're not making you money initially. They're costing oh. you money. So if you go through and instead of buying Langstroth boxes, which cost quite a bit of money, mm-hmm. if you go the route of building your own smaller nuke boxes or like I call a, a removal box, you can build those for cheaper a lot of times. Now, granted, times have changed and lumber prices and things have gone up drastically thanks to the mm-hmm. pandemic and everything that's transpired afterwards. But you can do reclaimed wood. You can do reclaimed lumber. You can go and buy new lumber and build things a lot of times for cheaper than you can buy the stuff from Man Lake or Daydant or any of those national suppliers. On the other side of that, if you're building not a Langstroth, if you're building a horizontal style hive, specifically like a top bar style hive, you can build an entire top bar for $75 or less back in the day, especially if you're doing reclaimed or cheaper lumber, things like that. Now, if you're making a smaller box that just needs to house this removal temporarily or for, you know, the first part of the year, you can make a nuke box if it was in a top bar style hive that only had 12 bars at the top of it. Mm -hmm. And for that same $75, you can end up building four or five of those. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got four or five boxes that you can use to go remove a colony and put them into, and they can live in it up through the first part of the year while they're growing and everything else. And a lot of times they'll even overwinter in those just fine. You've just got a smaller colony and it ends up, you know, being perfectly okay like that. So cutting your costs on the back end, as well as charging on the front end, that's how you get everything kind of started. The other aspects of it are if you're doing larger jobs and you find yourself having to rent any type of machinery or equipment, you need to charge that back to the client. So if you find yourself constantly renting a chainsaw because you're constantly cutting open old dead trees, you need to be charging that chainsaw rental fee back to the client. If you find yourself renting a generator because you're always out on locations where there's no electricity, but you need to run your shop back and your other stuff, you need to then charge that back to the client. Now, if you find that you're renting those items again and again and again, then you need to turn around and you need to invest in buying your own version of that item but you continue to charge it back to the client. So if you were charging them a flat $50 surcharge on a generator fee every time you had to use a generator and you find yourself doing it a lot, so you finally go buy a generator, that generator might cost you at the bare minimum $1,000. And you get that generator. Now, every time you go out there and use it, you still charge the client the $50 surcharge until you have paid for that generator. So that way it goes back and you compensate yourself for what you're what you're using there. Now, when you get into the bigger structural removals, your $60 an hour is not necessarily going to still cut it. You need to add in a few other things. So what we ended up doing for the Wicked Bee Removal Service is we have, if it's a structural removal where they're inside some sort of building that is going to have to be opened up, not just a trash can or a water meter or a tree, but literally in a shed in a house, in something like that, where you're going to have to open things up, there's a base rate. And that base rate for us, and you don't have to necessarily do it this way, but the base rate in theory should cover your minimum expenses for everything you're going to need to do with those bees once you get them back to your property. So if you're putting them into a Langstroth box and it's going to be a full-size setup and you're buying it from Man Lake or Daydant, that's about a hundred bucks. 
So your base rate needs to be a minimum of $100 because that's going to cover where the bees are going to go once you get them back home. For us, our base rate covers, and this is how I explain it back to the client, it covers your drive time and your mileage, your prep time and your materials, and the first hour on the property. So if I show up at the property and it ends up, they're small, I open up whatever they're in and they end up being small and I can get them out of there within that first hour, then you just pay me the base rate. And I already know that that base rate is enough to compensate me for whatever the bees are going to need to go into afterwards. It's not necessarily compensating me for my time, but at least it pays for the bees. Now, on the flip side of that, though, most of the time, that's not the case. If you're going out there and you're doing all your due diligence and you're checking everything and you know exactly what you're getting into, you should also know exactly how long it's going to take you to do it or have a good idea of it. So for me doing this for as many years as I have, I can look at a couple of photos, see where they are and give you a pretty damn good estimate without ever setting foot on your property with just a simple conversation and a couple of photos. Now, once I get there, I am going to spend a good chunk of that first hour on the property doing my due diligence, making sure that I know exactly where those bees are located. I'm going to use my thermal guns. I'm going to go in and use the scope cameras, make tiny little openings so that I can see inside the, the, the cavity into the hollows and see where the bees are located at and make sure that I know what exactly I'm going to do so I don't mess something up for the client. So I don't cut into something that shouldn't be cut into, open up a hole that didn't need to be opened. You want to know exactly where those bees are and exactly where you're going to cut before you ever start. And that'll take up a good chunk of that base rate first hour. Now, after that first hour, we then have an hourly surcharge rate or an hourly rate that comes after the first hour. So if I end up being on your property for five hours, that first hour is going to be covered by the base rate and the additional four hours are going to be at the hourly rate. So if you ended up having where you were still doing it, um, like we had discussed, say you're still doing it at the $60 rate. And let's say you put a base rate on there. I'll just a second here. Let's say hypothetically that your base rate is $150. So you've got your $150 that covers the first hour. And then you've got four additional hours at $60 an hour you're going to end up at $390 for doing that removal as opposed to $150 or $60. So the $390 more than compensates for what you put them in and also compensates you for your time. So now you've actually made a little bit of money in the process of going through and doing this. The other things that you can do is obviously buy things that you need in bulk. So if you're using expanding spray foam for any purpose whatsoever, buying a single can of it at a time is going to cost you about $7 a can. But if you go and you buy it in bulk and you're buying a case at a time, you get a case discount where it knocks like 30 cent, 38 cents or something off a can. And so you end up saving a little bit of money that way. Um, we use a lot of aluminum window screens. So I buy the largest roll I can find because the bigger bulk quantity you get, the less you end up paying in the long run. So once you kind of get up and going, it'll eventually get there. Now, as you get more experience, these are just where you should start. As you get more experience and you start getting more confident in what you're doing and doing a good job at it, you're not playing Battleship where you're like, uh, B-52, miss, uh, B-31, miss. You know, like you're not cutting holes everywhere. Once you feel good and confident and you're doing a good job and you pretty much know that you can handle the different situations you're putting yourself in, you can start increasing those rates to compensate for your experience and the quality of service and work that you do and the time that you're doing it. 
So your $60 hourly rate can start to go up. Your base rate can start to go up, or maybe you started your base rate a little bit higher. Maybe your base rate is $200 instead of 100 or 150. But that's all of the things that you kind of have to take into mind. You have to be able to cut down your expenses. You have to be able to cut down what you're using and be efficient at it. You have to be able to compensate for any tools that you might have to purchase and or bigger equipment that you're renting. And you got to compensate yourself for your time, your mileage and everything that's going on on the job site that day. So there is a very long Short answer to your question. <laughs> and and you are not, you are just taking the bees out. You're not putting stuff back over the hole. You are that's just a, that's taking correct. the bees out, period. That is absolutely correct. Um, whenever I show up on a job site or I have any of my team members go, we are very upfront with the client about what, this is how this is going to go. And I usually tell them that on the phone before we ever show up to, this is how the process goes. We're going to do this. This is where they're located. We're going to double check and make sure that's right. Then we're going to open it up. We're going to take all the bees out. We're going to scrape the cavity down as absolutely clean and smooth as we can get it, which usually for us, that means there's hardly any wax if at all left inside that cavity. We suck everything out of there. We clean everything up. We spray it down, scrub it down. Like we do everything to make it clean and pristine and good to go. We may seal it up with plastic if it's an exterior opening and it's going to need to be sealed off due to impending rain or something like that. Um, so we may put a plastic sheeting over it and staple that into place and make sure that nothing can get in and out of it from a bee perspective. And then we go through and coach them through what they're going to need to do, what their following steps are going to need to be. We tell them, you know, there are still going to be some foragers that come back. So you may witness this or you may experience this. They're going to clump up and they're going to probably be somewhere in this vicinity. And they should be like half of a softball size or smaller. Now, if you come back and you find something that's hanging up there and it's the size of a watermelon, you need to call me because that's a problem. But if yep. it's just like this little half of a tennis ball, clump of bees, that's not anything to worry about. And you explain the process of what's going to happen with those bees and what they'll eventually go do. And then you explain to them what they're going to need to do to seal that cavity back up and make sure that it is sealed up bee tight, meaning you don't leave any openings anywhere because even though we've cleaned it and scrubbed it and put stuff in it, it's still going to have the pheromone signature of the bees. And, and eventually it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be five years. Another swarm could come through that area looking for a home and the scouts will find that smell. And if they can find a way into it, they'll move in there. If they can't, yep. but the cavity adjacent to it has an opening, they will move in right beside it. So you have to go through and you have to be a good homeowner and make sure you're keeping up with your maintenance because you might seal the cavity up that we just opened up and took the bees out of. But if you don't seal up the cavity on either side of it and it's got just as many holes and openings, they'll move into the cavities on either side of it. So, you know, go through, close those holes. Bees are not going to chew their way into something. They will absolutely chew their way out of it, but they're not going to chew their way into it. So, but we educate them on all that and we let them know that the repair work is the responsibility of the homeowner. The homeowner has all the right to do the repairs on their own, or they can hire a licensed contractor to do those repair works. I am not a licensed contractor. So by the state of Texas, I can destroy your house and demolish it to the ground, but I am not allowed to repair it if it has electrical and plumbing and all that other stuff in it, unless I'm a licensed contractor. So we make sure that they, they know all that up front. Now, some people that do removals also do the repair work. 
If that's the case, you need to be charging more or you're going to have more of an hourly rate associated with that for the repair aspect of it. And I would quote that as two separate things. This is how much it's going to cost to do the removal and how long it's going to take. Then we're going to leave the cavity open for two days. Then we're going to come back and we're going to do the repair work and your repair work is estimated at XYZ. But again, it's not easy work. It's interesting and fascinating work, but it's not always fun work either. And it is hard. You're out there in, if you're smart, a suit, <laughs> especially here in Texas, um, you're out there in a bee suit, you're hot, you're sweaty, the bees are mad, they're trying to sting you, you're trying to do as good a job as you can, you're covered in sweat and sticky stuff and honey and gunk, and you're out there for hours, you know? So like for us, if we're doing that in July or August, that means I'm in a triple layer suit in a minimum of 95 degrees with a heat index of God only knows what for four hours, solid, nonstop. Once we start, we don't stop. You don't stop and sit down and take a break and chill. If you've got people working with you, you can do it in shifts, but the actual work on the removal is constantly going. So it's not for the faint of heart, <laughs> like everything else in and beekeeping. <laughs> and that is Bee Removal 101. <laughs> right? We actually are going to do an episode. I'm going to bring in MJ and Jorge um, one of these days, and we're going to do an actual episode on bee removals and kind of talk through some of the strategies and the horror stories and some of their best memories and worst memories of, of working with me over the years. Oh, you've got a new guy, MJ. You got Hawaii's always been. No, M MJ, been. MJ is actually a girl and oh, okay. MJ is the original. Oh, okay. Yep. MJ came before her. Jorge. I know Jorge. I don't know yeah. MJ. Yeah. You've never met MJ, but she, she came before Jorge. Okay. Okay. So that's that. Um, <laughs> that was, that was like, that was like an entire episode and it was just one question. That's like me talking about swarms. Yeah. That was you on the bonus episode. <laughs> I just let you go. Um, all right. So this next one comes from Jared and this is something that actually we hear a lot. And so I kind of wanted to bring this back up just for everybody's information here. He says, good afternoon. I hope all is well. I have a quick question. I have two Langstroth hives. Both of them have two deeps and then a honey super on them. I have a queen excluder between the two deeps and the honey super, and both of the hives are chocked full of bees. The two deeps are chocked full of bees and brood and honey. I've had the supers on since spring, and the frames contain plastic foundation. However, the bees have not moved up into the super and built out any of the comb or done anything up there whatsoever since I put them on. I did not have any drawn comb already available, so I had to go with just the blank foundation to start off with. Should I remove the queen excluder and just let them have the free space and the free range? This is now my second year of doing this process and I cannot coax the bees to move up into the super and draw the combs. The bees are healthy and they're consistently dragging in pollen and nectar, and they seem to be doing great. They just won't draw out that third box. Appreciate any help. Thanks again, Jared. Again, we hear this a lot. It really depends on your area, your region, where you're at. If you're here in Central Texas, we do not have a heavy flow that is hard and heavy and fast for a short duration. We have a very drawn out, slow and steady flow that starts off really low and slowly ramps up to a peak plateaus for a month or so, and then drops to a stop. Yep. But it's not nearly 
the volume of nectar and honey that is produced like it is in northern states. Because of that, the bees have time to bring stuff in, build stuff, store stuff, and then turn around and also eat that same stuff. So like the year that we've had this year, when things start coming in, then all of a sudden we have a week solid of rain and the bees can't get out and can't go forage, but they've got to still feed the brood and feed themselves. They eat their food reserves. When the rain stops, they're going back out and they're starting over and they're bringing back in more reserves and building that reserve back up. Because of that process, they never really get to the point where, oh, we need to then utilize this other box. So in wild, the, the feral, quote unquote, unmanaged, unknown genetic lineage of bees that are living inside of a hollow tree cavity, the cavities that they look for are roughly 10 gallons in volume, which is about the same size as a single 10 frame Langstroth box. If you're doing a double deep and you're doing two 10 frame deep boxes, that is more than adequate space for the bees to do everything that they need to do through the entire year. They never need anything else. The super on top of that is for you and they don't need it. So beekeeping, what we have done over the course of eons as people have been doing beekeeping is we have encouraged them to build excess and to store excess so that we can take the excess while still leaving them with what they need. If you're in an area like us here in Central Texas, first off, we don't need two deeps down here. I know people in the northern states that don't actually use two deeps either. For us, 40 pounds of honey, which is equivalent to about one medium box, is really all they need to make it through winter. And a lot of times you'll find that they still have honey left over after the fact. So there's different things you can do. If you've already started off with two deeps and they've gone through and they've been building them out and everything else, but they're not moving up into that super, then yes, you can take the queen excluder off and you can allow them to go up in there and at least get started. Once they get started and they've built out a couple of combs, if you want to put the queen excluder back on there, you can. But as you have heard me say in seasons past, I don't use queen excluders unless I am purposely trying to do cut comb honey. If I'm not doing cut comb honey, I'm not using a queen excluder to separate them from the honey supers. I let the bees have full range of it. I don't care if they go lay in the honey super because eventually they're going to backfill down out of that. And by the time it's actually ready to be extracted, there's not going to be any eggs and larvae left up in there. They're all going to be emerged out as adult bees and it's going to be backfilled with nectar, dehydrated down to honey and capped as capped honey to be extracted. So it doesn't necessarily bother me, but I do know that some individuals really want that wax in the honey super to be pristine or you have commercial beekeepers who are working on their own calendar instead of the bees calendar and they can't wait for any potential brood and larva to hatch out. They've got to do it on this day because that's the day it's scheduled to happen. So they put those queen excluders in there to prevent some of that from happening. That is all stuff that kind of goes into play. But the bees, you have to encourage them to do that. And if you've done it for two years and you still can't encourage them to move up into that other box and you don't have any drawn comb to encourage them to get up into that other box, there's a couple of things that you can do. Next year, when they're just like you're still in winter, right? and they've all moved up into the top box and there's no bees in the bottom box, get rid of the bottom box, take it away. So that when you're ready to start doing your very first management and they've maybe just started thinking about laying eggs and starting to rip up the brood production, they now only have one deep and you give them the medium 
as their second box. And as they go through and they start to brood up and they get to the point where they've got some nectar coming in or you start artificially stimulating them with a sugar syrup, when they're ready to start drawing comb, they will move up into the medium and they will start drawing that comb. Don't put a queening scooter on there. Let them utilize that box. Worst case scenario, you sacrifice one box. Say you you desperately want, you know, all of your honey supers to not have ever had brood in them. You're still going to sacrifice this one box because you've got to get them started. You've tried for two years otherwise, and it hasn't worked. So you go through, let them start building in that box. Once they've started building in the box, you can use those combs and frames as starters and put them into other mediums to help encourage bees to move up into those boxes and start doing stuff. But once they've done that and they've started building that medium box, if you wanted to add that deep back into the mix later, you can do that. But what I recommended was based on area and again, you know, your flow and what happens in your region, I would split that colony into two colonies. That's what I was fixing to say. Have one deep box on each of the colonies and then one medium box for their honey super. And then every medium above that is yours. So your two boxes is a deep and a medium. And then every medium above that second one is all yours. That's what I would recommend doing because you've already tried it with the two deeps. You've tried it for two years this way and the bees don't want to move up and go beyond that. So you're going to have to reduce that space down once you've done that and you've encouraged them to start building in one comb or one box that's a medium sized frame. When you add your next box, you can checkerboard those frames with combs that are already drawn from the one below it. That'll encourage them to move up into that box. You can shuffle some things around. It gives you a little bit more flexibility. Whereas if you just got two deeps of drawn comb and no drawn mediums, you can't really do anything if they're not willing to move up into that. But at this point, for people in the United States anyway, adding boxes is pretty much done. Once you hit the peak of summer, you're not going to get the bees to really draw out wax. If you've been artificially stimulating and feeding them, they may continue to do it for a little while. But the closer to fall it gets, the less likely they're going to be to do that. So if they haven't touched it at this point, just take it off. Get rid of it. Let them do what they need to in their other two boxes and then start over next spring. Maybe go through and do those splits like we talked about, you know, or just take that box away. If it's unused, take it away and you can utilize that for another colony or a split later in the year and have all the drawn comb that you need to go through and do that. But then reduce them down to the single deep, put your medium on there get them working on that and trying to draw that out. So that is, uh, that is kind of the long and short of that one. And if you're using foundation, something that we've found, I know you've probably done it too. We found that the Akron foundation triple waxed, they build it out fast. They, cause it's got so much wax on it and, uh, it's, they, they build wax out of it or found our, you know, comb on it quick. I mean, real quick. So that just throwing that out. Well, so here's a, a great segue from that, Ken. Um, mm-hmm. This one is a listener question from Ben. And Ben actually sent in two questions. And I'm going to read them in reverse order because, unfortunately, for whatever reason, we all missed the first one, mm-hmm. I think. Either that or he didn't actually get it sent. I don't know because there's no dates in here for me to see when what came through. But when the second message came through, it notified me and I went in and looked and there's two messages and one of them is before he ever got his bees and the other one's after he got his bees. And I was like, whoops. (laughs) So, um, Mm -hmm. but Ben says, hey guys, you're great. 
Um, I have a quick question though, and I was hoping that you can help me out. I've been listening for a while now, and I just got my bees this spring at the end of May. I'm in Northern Vermont, and the bees are all happy and doing great, but they won't build on the frames like they're supposed to. They're building comb in all of the non-bee space areas, and they build off of the frame and don't actually build onto the foundation. They look healthy. They seem to be thriving, but I just can't get them to do what I want them to. Are there any ideas? Love the podcast. Thank you both for doing it. So transitioning over, you were talking about the Acorn Foundation. If you're using frames that have a plastic foundation, even when they're brand new, sometimes they don't have a lot of wax on them or Mm -hmm. that box has been setting in hot delivery vehicles and everything else. And the wax on the foundation can melt and or evaporate Mm -hmm off of those frames to where you just have basically plastic there. So we always recommend going through and re-waxing the frames. Now you can do it like Max if you want to be like really diligent about it and you can melt the wax down and get a roller and you can roll it onto the frame. Yep. You want to make mm-hmm. sure that it's not so thick that it covers up the actual indentions of the shape of the comb, but you do want to coat the wax with or the frame with the wax. The other thing you can do is the cheese grater kind of method that you've heard Ken and I talk about multiple times over the past few years, where you take Mm -hmm. natural beeswax, preferably from an actual colony, not bought at a store, and rub it back and forth really hard, up and down, all the way across that, and then crisscross and then diagonal, all the way across that plastic foundation so that it builds up the residue of the wax on the ridges of the frames or the ridges of the cells in that foundation. Get that done. And then you've added natural wax to it in a, in a very large quantity of the, And you've also added the natural pheromones from the bees on there as well. This will encourage the bees to actually draw the wax from that plastic foundation as opposed to up and off of it or beside it. Anytime they're doing stuff against what you want them to, remove it. All that burr comb and all that other stuff is just going to cause a mess and a heartache and you're not going to be able to keep up with stuff. So as you get them to draw out a frame properly, then you can go through and remove things that are improper, preferably doing it quick enough that it's not already a solid sheet of capped brood before you go in and start making those adjustments. Usually as soon as you see them building it in the wrong direction or in a place you don't want it to be, you cut it out of there immediately. Like don't, don't really give them the opportunity to get out of hand and continue to to scrub down those frames and make sure that they're really well waxed, put them in there and let them draw off of those. Eventually you'll get it corrected and you'll work all the way through that colony and and they should all be in line with where you want them to. Take your burr comb that you've scraped off of your frames, wad it up in a ball and use that to rub onto your foundation because you're putting their smell back onto that foundation. Absolutely correct. So Ben's very first message it goes back and you know reiterates that he's in Vermont. He's right on the Canadian border. And the premise of this first question, I'm going to skip the second part of it because I think by now he has figured out the second part. He kind of answered that on his own as he went through doing the beekeeping. <laughs> but the first part says, should I wrap my colonies for winter? It can get negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit up here without a wind chill, sometimes even colder. And that is an absolute resounding Yes especially if you're in a northern state. Now, down here in the south, you do not have to wrap your hives, but wrapping your hives greatly helps them and can greatly improve your survival risk. So this last year, 
we had that winter from hell that never ended down here and Texas lost yep. all electrical power and you know everything went to shit. Well, if you had a colony that was insulated and wrapped properly, those colonies survived without a problem. Colonies that were in standard three-quarter inch wood had great issues and some of them froze basically on the frame right there with open nectar and open pollen just two or three cells away from the bees because they got so cold they couldn't even move. So absolutely insulating your hives is definitely beneficial for the bees. It helps with the insulative value of the material because they're usually in a tree cavity that is three plus inches thick, which provides a great deal of insulation and control for that internal thermal thermal dynamics. But that little three quarter inch wood box that you're putting them in doesn't provide that value. So adding the insulation to it is always going to help. Actually, it helps even in the heat of summer because then they can still maintain that internal temperature and it deflects a lot of the heat from outside. It's never going to hurt anything. That's the basis of that. It's never going to hurt anything. But absolutely, I would say for you up there, up north with a potential negative 30 degrees um, or like, you know, in that first year, we joked a lot about Chiberia where Chicago was having negative 50 degree like temperature swings when the polar vortexes were coming through. Absolutely wrap your colonies. Definitely. Or move to Florida, not to Texas. <laughs> we got enough no. people moving to Texas. Go to Florida. Don't, don't move to Florida. Find somewhere else. <laughs> There's got to be a better place. <laughs> Unless you're old and retiring, then go for it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all right. So let's see one more, one more question. And then we'll call this one good for the day or the week or the month or whatever. Uh, oh, that's funny. Okay. So again, see, I told you we get these questions a lot. So this question came in from Connor and we've already answered it. Uh, but just to reiterate, just to show you that this is, is kind of a common theme and thread here. Hey guys, just found y'all's podcast and I'm absolutely loving the content. I do have a couple of questions though. What are your thoughts on using deep boxes only? Mm -mm. Da, da, da. So see, there you go. Now you've got another scenario where what if you only use deep boxes? Or I could even flip the coin on that and say, what if you only use medium boxes? It's fine. It honestly is. You could run into the problem, like we discussed just a little bit earlier, where you find that you're not getting the bees to be able to go through and draw everything out and not expanding beyond that. But at the same time, if you live in one of those northern states where they have this epic nectar flow that only lasts, like if you go all the way up into Canada, we've talked about this before and it just still just blows my mind. Up in some of the provinces in Canada, the nectar flow lasts for 45 days, period. Mm. Sometimes it's a little less, sometimes it's a little more, but 45 days is the average. And it is so hot and heavy and plentiful and bountiful and all of the plants and all of the insects and all of the wildlife are in tune with this flow and they know this is the only chance they've got those colonies can hand over fist outproduce our colonies down here so even though our production period lasts for you know gosh you got starts in april so you got april may june sometimes part of July. So we're looking at a minimum of three months, sometimes a little bit more at the beginning or a little bit more at the end. And there's this 45 days, barely a month and a half. And yet we might be happy if we make a hundred pounds of honey per hive, they can make mm -hmm. 200 plus pounds of honey per hive. Good, gosh. It's oh, absolutely said. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So when you go through and you in, or you're in one of those types of environments and scenarios, 
you could use all deeps and you could stack those deeps all the way up to the ceiling. And as the colony is growing and building so fast and they've got such an abundant amount of stuff coming in, they can absolutely build out all of that. And then they'll turn around and they'll fill it all up. So yes, you can use all deeps. If you're in a Southern state and, or if you don't want to lift the heavy, you know, 10 frame deep boxes, Mm -hmm. you could also use all mediums and you could have every single box be a medium box. You could reduce it to an eight frame box instead of a 10 frame box and take a little bit of weight off there for that too. It's completely up to you. Beekeeping is beekeeping. It does not matter what size container it's in, what shape the container is. Doesn't matter if it's a skep hive, if it's any of the varieties of horizontal hives, or if it's a Langstroth hive, beekeeping is beekeeping. What you put them in is really going to be to your preference and how you want to manage it in your management style. So yes, you can, but you could run into issues if you're in an area where they don't bring in enough nectar. Now, the other question that Connor has, and this one is one that we have also talked about before in the past, but we will touch on it here because it's always good to remind people. What about open feeding multiple colonies as long as your feeder is over 100 yards away from the nearest hive? The answer to this question was, yes, you can do that. It can act as a stimulant or a perceived nectar flow because they are finding the nectar externally and the foragers are bringing it in and dancing to tell you the location of where it's at. You can do that. So that's the upside. You can feed all your colonies in theory without ever having to open the colony or you could stimulate a little bit of a nectar flow so you can provide something out there for them. Now, the benefits kind of stop there. You need it to be at least 100 yards away or more and you need it to be in a direction so that any colony dancing to tell you the location of that is not going to confuse it and overshoot it and wind up at another colony. So preferably... If your colonies are all in a circle, you don't put it in the middle because then the colony could, you know, misjudge and go past to the colony on the opposite side. You want it to be out away from your apiary, not, you're not kind of in the middle of it, not right beside it, out away from it. Now, the downsides to all of this, though, are that number one, you're only feeding the strongest colonies. The biggest colonies that have the most foragers that can take the most nectar are the ones that are going to get the most of the sugar syrup that you put out there. Any weaker colony that is probably the one that truly absolutely needed the feeding is going to already have fewer foragers and therefore going to be able to partake less and bring less back because they're being outcompeted by the bigger, stronger colonies. Number two, fighting can ensue and or depending on the type of your feeder, drowning can ensue and you will lose a good chunk of foragers due to that. So if that was a weak colony and they lose the foragers, they're going to be in even worse shape. Number three, it is a breeding ground for potential disease because the disease can actually get into the food reserve if it is something that is pulling up, if they accidentally defecate or anything else into it, or if it's something that's transmissible through their mouth and saliva, it can get into that reserve of food. And then that actually becomes a reservoir of that disease or bacteria or fungi and then it is spread to the other colonies. It's also a great place to exchange mites because when bees are feeding, they're stationary and they don't move while they slowly drink up as much as they can hold and gorge themselves and fill their nectar crop, which allows plenty of time for a mite to go from this bee over to another bee who's from a different colony 
And then that bee takes that mite back to their colony. And now you've spread the mites, which also helps to vector and spread diseases. Number, what am I at? Four? <laughs> yeah. Or five, whatever. Number umpteen, whatever. It also alerts predators because you're not just feeding your honeybees. You're feeding any pollinator that wants to partake in this sweet substance that has been dropped out there in the middle of nowhere. And some of those are also predators, such as wasps, that very happily will eat bees. Plus, a large congregation of bees in a stationary manner that's not paying attention is setting ducks for lizards, birds, frogs, other critters that want to come by and munch on them. So, unfortunately, the benefits do not outweigh all of the potential negative consequences that you could be inflicting upon your colonies and the surrounding environment and ecosystem. Now, have we ever open fed? Yes. Are we probably going to open feed again in the future? Yes. Is it the right thing to do? No. <laughs> but I can't say that I'm never going to do it because most of the time when I do it, it is honey that we have extracted from a removal where the colony looks to be nice and healthy. We know that it's never been treated with anything. It's never been sprayed, but we can't sell it or consume it because we can't guarantee that. So if there's a massive quantity of it, we take all of the comb out and lay it out on this metal table that has like this kind of mesh crisscross grid work on it. And it allows the bees to come and rob all of that nectar and honey out and take it back to their colonies. But it's out in the middle of a 40 acre field, way far away from the bees. And they can then go and take it back to their colonies so that they can repair and rebuild. And it's usually out at the removal farm that we do that, out the removal, uh, removal yard. My uh, rehabilitation, that's what I was trying to say, the rehabilitation yard. Rehab. Where the, where the bees get it. Yeah, they get to go to rehab after we've removed them. They've got to rebuild their comb. We don't ever take their honey and put it back with them. If we do, because you don't try to save the honeycomb, it'll make a mess and it's going to foul up your removal. You only save the brood. That's it. We can extract that down into a jar and put the jar back on the colony for them to feed from that. Or we can just put it out there and let everybody partake. And that's usually what we end up doing. So it does happen a couple times a year. We will we will do a mass dump like that and let all the bees out there take it. But but yeah, those are the pros and cons. And it's it's definitely something to consider because while you can do it, uh-huh. Should you do it? Not necessarily. Um, should you do it with an unknown source that could have potentially been contaminated and treated? No. Should you do it from a colony that died out and you don't know why? No, because if it died out from something like American Foul Brood, you're going to spread that to every colony in the area. So again, way more disadvantages and harm can come from it than benefits. So I would not recommend it. Internal feeding, and always the best. One thing that it does do good, you feed all the bees around you, that's the feral bees, and you get some hellacious swarms the next year. That's Ken's misguided theory. <laughs> and also do not feed honey that you bought at the big box store. No, again, because you could be transmitting really bad diseases that are in a fungal form that do not respond to pasteurization or anything else and the bees consume it and then it gestates in their gut and then all hell breaks loose. So absolutely do not do that. Now that's it. That's the last question I have for today. Sound like a winner to me. <laughs> it better. That was, have, that was a long episode, actually. 
Well, let me throw some. We had Tara on Saturday. So if y'all want to check out that oh, on my radio show on the great outdoors, go to AM 1300, the zone, listen to the great outdoors yesterday's, which would have been the 17th. Go check out the great outdoors on the 17th. And we had Tara Chapman of two house honey on, and you said she's going to be on the show sometime or another. Yep. She'll be on the show sometime, maybe in August. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll have her back on. So like I said, we've got, we've got several interviews. I was actually hoping for them to line up to where we had like three really big interviews in July. And it's looking like that may unfortunately end up being in August, but they are still in the works. They're coming. So we'll, we'll get those out there and we'll get Tara back on. And she's going to talk to us about crystallized honey is what she's going to be discussing when she comes back to visit again. And, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we will be doing a live listener Q and a through the Podbean live system sometime in the next week or two. And it'll be kind of focused on the natural beekeeping segment. Honestly, though, you can, you can call in and talk to us about whatever you want. That's perfectly fine. Um, but we will have Natalie on there so that we can do the natural beekeeping stuff as well. And looking forward to that. And we will post that out there on social media and hopefully give everybody an update next week with a little bit more specifics on that. But I will tell y'all one thing, y'all probably will not have enough time to, to, to talk because I have so many questions for her because I don't get to talk to her very often. Well, twice. And, but, uh, uh, I have a lot of questions, so it's, it's going to be fun. That's all I can say. <laughs> I have a mute button, so I'm sure I can fix that. i'm just playing (laughs) i know Uh, all right everybody well i hope that you have a great week ahead and that everything goes well and you and your bees are safe and healthy and happy and look forward to talking to everybody again next time y'all be good thank y'all so very much looking forward to visiting with you next week y'all be good it's time for our guys to buzz off but don't fret the hive jive journey continues with new episodes mondays every month until then you can follow along with the guys on facebook and instagram at the hive jive thanks for listening and be safe out there